let's get into our Bibles. First Samuel chapter 21, and uh, we're in the next part of this series, The Making of the Leader. You know, my son came downstairs just the other day, and he fell into Katie's arms. He just had a very vivid nightmare, and he was shaking from it, and he began to tell her about the nightmare. And then he said, Mommy, I'm just so glad that I woke up. Now, I felt badly for the little guy, and I wanted to reassure him, so I said, you know, son, that's something you can always count on. You can always count on when you're having a nightmare that you're going to wake up. I thought that was pretty good advice coming from a dad, you know what I'm saying? I was like, that was like one of those key moments there. But here's the thing. That's true for dreams, but it's not true when the nightmare is reality. You know, sometimes life takes you right to the edge. And you enter into this space in life that we call desperation, and it can happen in different ways. Some are in the space of desperation, you and your spouse. You've just lost the ability to communicate. You can't talk anymore. Anytime you try to talk around even basic issues, it devolves into an argument. You wish you could wake up from the nightmare. Or you find out that one of your children is going to go through a season of suffering. You wish you could wake up from that nightmare. Or you haven't spoken with one of your children. For some reason, the relationship broke down. You wish you could wake up from the nightmare. Joblessness, um, you know, health medical diagnosis, that one bill that broke the bank account. We find ourselves in places of desperation sometimes. And I've said this before, and I'm going to say it a lot. One of the hardest aspects of suffering is working out my theology. You see, perhaps there's a, a pre-suffering theology, and the pre-suffering theology is a little more simplistic. That theology says God is good and God's in control. But in the midst of suffering and on the other side of suffering, well, particularly in the midst of suffering, we start asking the question, if God is good, then why God? And if God is in control, how long, O oh Lord? That's theology and process. And what we come to find out about the Word of God is that the Word of God has a space for us to work out our theology no matter where we are at in life. Now, David enters into the space of desperation. He's running for his life. And what we're going to find in the text this morning is that there are some dynamics that take place in suffering, particularly in David's life, and we can really glean something from these dynamics this morning. So let me read the story to you. It's 1 Samuel chapter 21, and we're looking at verses 1 through 9. It picks up and it says, Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, 
what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men um, are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? Don't ask me to interpret that part for you. So the priest gave him the holy bread. For there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there's none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. So as we pick up this story, looking at it, remember the context. David has just left Gibeah, the place where Saul operated his kingdom from. He has just had a conversation with Jonathan. Now he's come south several miles to Nob. Now Nob is the place where the priests reside. Ahimelech is smelling that something's wrong. David is approaching the city and Ahimelech, it says, trembles. He's scared. Why is he coming here alone? Why is he coming here at all? What business does he have? What are his interests? And David, on, for his part, also seems to distrust Ahimelech somewhat because he concocts this flimsy story. Well, I'm out here on a secret mission and I need to come and get some bread and supplies and then I'll be off on my journey. And what's the deal with a soldier showing up to a priestly city asking for a weapon? Who does that? It's like a plumber coming to your house on the job and saying, hey, can I borrow a pipe wrench from you? What do you mean, can you borrow a pipe wrench from me? I'm going to find someone else to do this job. Now, we have to ask ourselves a question of the text as we look at David in desperation. Why is he lying to the head priest? And then beyond that, is it ever right to lie? You know, as a believer, I think we can kind of come into a place where we get confused over moral matters. For example, you've probably heard of the concept of a noble lie alive that we would say serves the greater good. 
And then you get into the space of you start asking this question of all the what abouts. Like, what about the reality or the situation, hypothetically, someone shows up to their house and they say that they're going to kill you. And then they ask you, is anyone else in the house? What would you tell them? Would you lie? I don't know what I would do. But I also know that most decisions are not binary. Like, I might punch them in the face or something else. I don't know. Is it all right to lie? And anytime I ask a question like that, I, I have to go back to the character of God. And what I find out about God and in his character is the Bible says that God is a God of truth. God never accomplishes his will through deceit. In fact, in Hebrews 6.18, I'm told that I can trust the promises of God because it is impossible for God to tell a lie. In fact, look at the life of Jesus. Think of the adversity and the desperation that Jesus faced. Is there ever an instance where Jesus lied to further his will, to further his plan? No. Because deception never ultimately leads to noble outcomes. Go back later today, read chapter 22. You'll see in that chapter that David's lie leads the priests to be in this very precarious situation. Saul actually comes back to Nob and he has Doeg the Edomite kill every single one of the priests. Now, I'm not suggesting that David's culpable for that, but I am suggesting that the lie set the priests up to experience that. You see, the bottom line is that the Bible is not endorsing David's behavior here. Sometimes we read stories through rose-colored glasses. David can do no wrong. We place David up on a pedestal. But what we find from the Bible is that there's only one man who is the ideal. That's Jesus. And any other story that I read of a character in the Bible, that's just the actual that's how a real person struggles through life and deals with different situations. And what we learn about ourselves through David is this, desperation exaggerates character flaws in us. What was David's character flaw? Was he a pathological liar? I don't think so. I mean, as I read his story, I actually find him to be a pretty direct, truthful individual. No, I would say his character flaw is that David could do things that were expedient. Meaning, he did things that were convenient, practical to get ahead, even if those things were improper or even immoral. Remember how we said when we were looking back at verse 7 and 17 that it's really important to look at a character's first words? I want to go back to 17 for just a second and, and revisit David's first words, and I think we'll see something about him in those first words. Now remember, Goliath has just gotten up and he's defamed the Israels of God, uh, the, the, the armies of God's people, and, and David is revved up. He is zealous for the Lord, and then he makes this statement, and he makes the statement in this order. The first thing he says is this, number one, what shall be done 
for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel. And then number two, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And I want to suggest to you that he should have only said number two, period, end of sentence. Number one is, what's in it for me? David could be expedient. Now, there's two major problems with character flaws. The first is that you can't see them, and the second is that they grow in us if we don't deal with them. Think about how expedience grew in David's life. He starts off, what's in it for me? Then, I'm going to tell a lie to save my bacon. And then I'm the king. I'm standing on a rooftop. I see a beautiful woman. One time won't hurt anything. I find out she's pregnant. Have Uriah come home. Uriah, why don't you go and, and spend the night in your house and relax and enjoy all of the comforts of home? Wink, wink. Oh, it turns out that Uriah is a man of integrity and personal loyalty, and, and he won't go and enjoy the comforts of home because he's too committed to this holy war that we are involved in in God's behalf. Get him drunk. Still won't go. Joab, send him to the front line and have him killed. Now there's a saying that goes like this. Watch your thoughts, they become your words. Watch your words, they become your actions. Watch your actions, they become your habits. Watch your habits, they become your character. Watch your character, it becomes your destiny. For now, the Bible is neither confirming nor denying David's character flaw. It's simply telling the story, but we are discerning readers. We read beyond this present story, and we understand that the purpose of these stories is so that we might grow spiritually. And I know that character flaws exist within myself, and I know that if left unchecked, they will grow. So then how do I address that which ex exists within myself that I cannot see? Well, the first thing that we have to realize is that you can't see them, but others can. You can't see it, but others can. Our, our mission statement at the very center of the mission statement is the word transformation, worship, transformation, mission. And transformation here, what that means for us is growing in Christ, but growing in Christ in the context of a community of grace. And see, it's in a community of grace that I build relationships of trust where I can hear hard things about myself with the help of people who know me and love me. You see, Lone Ranger Christianity doesn't work. It never works. And the reason it doesn't work is because the Holy Spirit has designed spiritual growth around needing other people. I need other people. So as long as I hold people at arm's length, I'm stalling my growth. Another principle is that while desperate times are not enjoyable, they are revealing. Uh, low points have a way of exposing us to ourselves. Now, I'm not suggesting that you will actually see that in the moment, because when you're in the place of desperation, the only thing you're thinking about is your problem. 
But given some time and and given some distance, you can go back and pray over something like Psalm 139. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Remember, David isn't the ideal, but David wrote this psalm, so he is setting for us an example. David knew that it was a regular habit in the Christian life to reflect. To reflect. There's something deeply spiritual about that, saying, God, why did I do that? Why did I blow up in that conversation? I know that this was going on and then that kind of triggered it, but I blew up there. I couldn't manage it. Or I told a lie. Why? Help me to see the things in myself I don't want to see, God, so that I can grow to look more like Jesus. Now let's look at the next part of the story, the next dynamic. I think the thing we need to ask of the text next is, why did David go to Nob? Remember, Nob is the place where the priests reside. Now, Eugene Peterson, in my opinion, is on target here. He says this, when we're pushed to the boundaries of our existence, running for our very lives, without provisions and without weapons, we seek sanctuary a holy place. And then this wonderful surprise, we discover vitality in holiness, life-deepening energies in the holiness. We enter weakened and endangered, and before we know it, are strengthened and equipped to face the danger. I love that David runs to Nob in his distress. This is the place where the priests minister. It's the place that represents sanctuary at this time. So he's going to this place in order to seek direction and restoration from God. Now, how do I take that over and carry it over into today's time? I think about my own theology, and I hold to two theological ideas when it comes to the church. One piece of theology I hold to is that the church is the people, it's not the building. Okay? It's the people, it's not the brick and mortar. Another thing that I hold to is I say that the church is a family. It's not an event. You see, when it comes to understanding that about the church, we've got to be able, though, to walk and chew gum at the same time because sometimes we allow a statement like the church is, a, uh, is the people and not the building to say that we don't have to care for the building. And sometimes we say the church is a family and not an event, so we, we de-emphasize the corporate gathering of the church. But walk and chew gum because simultaneously in my theology, I understand that corporate worship is a huge part of a believer's week. Huge. And I also understand that Christians have been building structures for thousands of years, physical locations that were the focal points for the people of God to meet with God. Meaning, there's actually something special about this space. It's a dedicated space. 
It's a space for prayer, a space for the Word of God to be preached, a space for people to be on a journey where they're learning more about God, a space for emergencies. After all, sanctuary itself simply means safety or refuge. But think about David. He enters into this space with his flaws. Now, for some of us, that might sound a little sketchy. He's coming in and he's lying to a priest. Isn't sanctuary supposed to be the place for holy people only? But as we look at the text, I would submit to you that God invites David to enter into the space of sanctuary with his flaws. You see, sanctuary should be a place where I can come messy, not polished. It's a place where God cleanses me, not a place that I must avoid soiling. I come here out of sorts, anticipating that there is a holy God who is going to take the mess of my life and and build me back and restore me and create in me a, a better reality than the one that existed before. It's the space where human frailty meets the compassion of God. And we see that in Ahimelech in his encounter with desperate David. Remember, David comes in and he's trying to sell his story. He's asking for five loaves of bread for his journey. Why five loaves? I don't know. But Ahimelech says to David, the only bread we have here is the bread of the presence. Now, as you go and do your homework post-sermon, also look at Leviticus chapter 24. And there, you will read about the bread of the presence. You'll see that it was considered holy, that every Sabbath, 12 loaves of this bread were placed in the tabernacle. And the bread, among other things, was a quiet witness to the reality that God sustains his people and he supplies their needs. It's kind of like for us, the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Now, when it comes to the Old Testament law, I would categorize the law as having a moral aspect that's timeless and a ceremonial aspect, and that was more Old Testament Israel's system that we don't utilized today in our faith experience. Now, this ceremonial law was meant to create separation between sacred things and profane things, or you could think of it as like heavenly things and earthly things. The, the bread was meant to only be eaten by the priests. Now, why did God incorporate this in Israel's theology? Well, the ceremonial aspects of the law were designed to teach the people that life could not be compartmentalized. As an Israelite is walking out and they're looking at a field, they would notice that you didn't put two different kinds of seeds in the field. As they looked at fabric, they noticed that you didn't put two different types of thread in the fabric. As they entered the doorposts of their house, they had Deuteronomy chapter 6 on their house. It was everywhere. You don't compartmentalize God, and that reality is true for us today too. It's not a religion where you know I come and I meet with God on Sunday, and then Monday through Saturday I do my own thing. You can't compartmentalize this God. He's at the center of life, the center of it all. 
I can't compartmentalize them away from my money. I can't compartmentalize them away from my love life. I can't compartmentalize them at all. Yet, Ahimelech determines to offer the bread to David. And we might get hung up on the condition of it. Like I said, I'm not going to interpret that for you this morning. But the question we should be asking is, why is he allowed or willing to bend this law at all? Again, the Bible doesn't comment one way or the other here in this text. It doesn't say, like, in parenthesis, Ahimelech shouldn't have done that. But as we go on later, Jesus makes comment of this. The disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath. That's considered work. And Jesus says, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. So again, why does Ahimelech do this? Why does Jesus seem to condone it? I support the majority view on this. I would express that view like this. God's law always has space for compassion or for believers to meet pressing need. I think about the dissonance that would be created if the dynamic worked out like this. Here you have this bread of presence, which is meant to symbolize that God meets your needs. He provides for you. And desperate David comes into sanctuary, and he's ragged, and he's hungry, and everyone can tell that he's desperate, and he's met by the rigid, unbending, legalistic, ceremonial law. David, you can't have this bread. It's for the priests only. But I understand that there's some rocks out there with some bugs under them. Go and enjoy. And Jesus spent a big part of his ministry pushing back against this. Remember the Pharisees, they're hyper-focused on the letter of the law. You do it just how it says it. Doesn't matter if you love God. Doesn't matter if you love people. You just check those boxes and you're all good. One um, Sabbath the Pharisees are standing around Jesus and they're just waiting to see if he will heal a man who has edema. Now the ESV text translates edema as dropsy. It's another term for it. So a condition where fluid fills up underneath the skin, sometimes localized around the ankles, sometimes in the abdomen. A condition that if left untreated for a significant amount of time leads to some very bad things. They're standing around, folding their arms, smugly looking at Jesus, and the big question on their mind, is he going to break the Sabbath right now and heal that guy? So Jesus asked the question, what should I do right now? Help me to understand this. It's the Sabbath to heal or not to heal. What's the right thing? They say nothing. But Jesus is unequivocal in his actions. He heals the guy. And then he takes them back to their own theology. He says this, You, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? He's saying, 
you have exceptions to the law that benefit yourself, but you have zero exceptions that benefit others. You don't have a space for compassion. Church, do you think that God wants you to have a heart for the community? Of course He does. Of course He does. And what we come to find out about the character of God through these interactions is that He is a compassionate God. And that means then that when you're in your space of desperation, that the church, that sanctuary, should be the first place you can turn. Now I know, even as I say this, that some of you have experienced what is called church hurt. Either through a trusted leader or a culture that had developed in a church, the church no longer felt like a sanctuary. It was an excruciating experience, a painful experience. The first place you should be able to turn became a place where you couldn't turn. And what's happening, because some people have experienced this, is they're going through a process called deconstruction. Deconstruction means I get down to the very foundation and I just begin to question the foundation. Is it even important to go to church? If I've been hurt... I could go to church and get hurt again. Should I reintroduce myself to that pain? Now look at David here, though. David, deeply hurt by community. Yet David flees where? To community. There's three reasons that we begin to think that we don't need community. One reason is a wounded past. The second reason is false beliefs, and the third reason is fear of being known. Here's the thing. You have to be known to grow. The false belief is that the real solution is to get away from community, and the wounds, here's the solution for that. You can get hurt by other people, and you can only heal with other people. So, that's a bad solution to say, I'm going to isolate myself because you can't get to the space of healing. You can't heal on your own. The way that you heal from pain with God is you, re you receive restoration, reconciliation, and regeneration. And all of those things are relational in nature. I need others to experience those things. So don't let that be your solution. And my prayer for this church, we're a church that has been growing. Um, we're a church that has been developing as a community of grace. And I want this to be the first place where anyone can turn when they're desperate. Let me come back to the first question I asked, the theological question. Why does God place David, or us for that matter, on life's edge? Why does he allow us to experience desperation. Well, this week, um, I had lunch with Humam Surahal, and I'll tell you, if you know Humam, you know it's a great experience. If you go have lunch with him, he's a great conversationalist. We were talking about investing. Humam is a money guy. And what I mean by that is not that he's like greed or consumed with money. He'd take the shirt off his back for another person. I just mean he's good with money. He thinks in those categories. He's an investment guy. As we were talking, I said, you know who, Mom, 
I'm always interested in what you do. And I've even been thinking about getting into investing on my own. I'm just, I'm intrigued by it. I don't really actually care that much about money, but I love strategic things. And that seems really strategic for me. So here's my plan, Humam. I'm going to, you know, build up a little, you know, discretionary money over three to five years. And I'm going to get in that time involved in investment. He stops me dead in my tracks. He says, why are you going to wait three to five years? Well, because, you know, I want to see how it all works out. I don't understand it at all. And he's like, no, 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 no. You are going about this all wrong. You got to take a small sum of money, like don't bet it all, right? A small sum of money, and you've got to just start investing. Because here's what's going to happen. If you just try to trace like a stock over three years, you're not going to remember anything about it. You're going to remember how it works when you lose money and when you make money. Now, what he's talking about here is memory that is created through the spikes and the dips. The spikes and the dips. Now, life has spikes and dips. The dips are life's edges. Those unforgettable times of desperation. Those times where we learn lessons. I had another conversation with a member and we were reflecting on one of the principles, one of the lessons that we learn from the dips, it's this, on life's edge, God gives us special insights for things he's preparing us to do down the road. He had a dip in his life. He went through an immense season of suffering, and just a few weeks ago, God gave him the impact, the ministry, to talk to another person who was going through the same situation. And he spoke to the situation at an entirely different level than he could have before. You know, David experiences this. When he takes over the kingdom and he sets his throne in Jerusalem, the first words out of his mouth at that time is this. He says, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. He knew what it was like to flee. He knew what it was like to feel like there's no place to feel safe. And he didn't even want that for his enemy's grandson. And so what does he do? He brings Mephibosheth into his own household and lets him eat at the table. He learned that in the dip. A second one. One, on life's edge, God deepens our awareness of his presence. David knew God pre-suffering, but David knew God post-suffering. Listen to what he writes in Psalm 34.8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Friends, that's not an ivory tower outlook of the world. That's not a guy that says, oh, I read a book about that before. That's lived experience. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Father, as we close our time this morning, I dare to pray this prayer over my church family. While I don't want suffering for anyone, Lord, I 
do know that you do a lot in the midst of it. In fact, in the book of James, it says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So here's what I dare to pray, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for the dips. Thank you for those seasons that are particularly difficult. Your plan for my life is not comfort and ease. Your plan for my life is for me to look more like Jesus. And I want that, Lord, and I want that for this church. We want to be your people. We want to be zealous for your ways. We want to embrace others with compassion. We want to be that community, Lord. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.